our author this morning, the Apostle Paul, um, finds himself in, a, in an odd place. This church that he's writing to, this church in Corinth, he personally planted. Uh, like Brittany and Nick's story, he was the one who had led most of the people in this church to Jesus. Later on in their relationship, years and years later, some other influences started to come in and accuse Paul and ask questions about his authority and criticize the way that he lived his life. And the Corinthian church, a large portion of it, started to take up that banner and turned against Paul. And so they're saying things like, Paul, we're not really sure you work for Jesus. And he's saying, well, you should be sure because I introduced you to him. You know, your whole foundation as a church is built on the one that I've laid. And so he's in this difficult place where he loves these people and he's trying to just wake them up to his love for them. Um, but he's also having to defend and explain his apostolic ministry. The critics who came into the Corinthian church were saying things like, if you looked at the life Paul lives, it's full of danger and suffering and poverty. Does that really sound like somebody worth following? They looked at Paul and they went, you know, he's really not that impressive of a communicator. He doesn't have a lot of dignity. How can you expect him to garner the respect to your non-Christian friends that will bring them to be Christians? Wouldn't you rather have someone as a figurehead who's respectable like us? They were saying things like, look, Paul, he's taking advantage of you. He's just using you for some unknown agenda. And so he's in this place where he's defending himself, but at the same time, he's doing it in a way that really is unique. All the places where we expect him to press full court, he doesn't. And all the places we expect him to be restrained, he's not. What we're going to see this morning is that there's there's a center of gravity for Paul, something that's changed in his life that changes the way he even navigates this type of craziness. And so uh, as we look at it, it's, it's worth keeping in mind the complexity of what's going on. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal letter. Just look at the personal pronouns, the I and the me's of the New Testament letters of Paul. This one is extensively fuller with them than other ones. Just by its nature, it has to be. Also, a challenge is that the, uh, the circumstances we're piecing together, like listening to one side of a cell phone conversation on the bus, okay? We have a general idea of what's being said, but not always exactly. But we will learn this morning that something that has changed in Paul's life is his relationship with other people. And actually, if you know Paul's story, that's not really that surprising. Because these people he's writing to, Christians, in Paul's life, they served a very different category before he knew Jesus. They were his enemies. He was out to destroy the church. And then he met Jesus, and that changed very drastically. But we're going to see that it changed something at a deeper level. It's not as simple. The equation is not as simple as because I love Jesus, therefore I love everybody else. There's nuance there that we have to explore to understand the depth of the change that a relationship with Jesus brings in your relationship with others. And this is a great passage to see that happening. So please read with me in verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, 
Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what's in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, uh, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the, uh, sorry, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Let's pray. God, as we look at this series, we, we have two things in mind. One is for those of us who are already Christians to own up to the profoundness of the transformation that happens in our relationship with Christ and to weigh in the balances where we are in our life right now and see if we're building on that foundation, tapping into that resource formed by that formation. But we also do this reflecting on what Jesus does uh, and how he changes us for the sake of those around us. For the world of people we know, our baristas and our neighbors and our family and our friends and our coworkers who don't know you so that we can explain to them what you have done in our life and invite them to experience the same change. And so for these next five weeks, God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts both the joy of our salvation and the good news that you have given us to share. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may have noticed that verse 11 begins with the word, therefore. You probably don't remember what comes prior to this, even if you've been attending church with us, because we haven't been in 2 Corinthians for a season now. And so it's worth reading what's just been said in the letter so that we understand Paul's opening statement in our passage this morning. Notice what he says in verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The first change that we see this morning is a change dealing with fear. Now, we have a problem in modern society that we are tremendously reductionistic. And so we reduce the definition of concepts down to very small things and then we categorize them. For example, it's very easy for us to talk about anger as if anger is always bad and is always rooted in hatred. But in actuality, there are good reasons to be anger, and there is even good anger. And we can say these things reductionistically about anger and then righteously and angrily cry out about wrong things and still miss that. I'm not saying that we live reductionistically. I'm just saying that we speak it. And fear is one of those places. Sometimes, even as Christians, we go, in a Christian's life, there's no place for fear. In fact, we have good biblical precedent for doing so. The Apostle John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And what he's trying to communicate there is that when we're in a relationship with Jesus, 
The love that he brings into that relationship is so profound and so great, it's no longer a relationship of fear. This morning as we sang together, we sang that we are no longer a slave to fear. We are the children of God. And both of those are absolutely right. But the type of fear and the cause of fear there is both the same thing. It's the fear for rightly understanding God's standard of righteousness and the fact that we don't measure up. For rightly understanding that there should be righteous consequences for evil doings and that has direct bearing on our life. That fear has been uniquely dealt with in Jesus Christ because he drank our punishment to the dregs. Because all of God's wrath against sin was poured out on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and there's none left left for us. But there are other aspects and elements of fear that still exist in the Christian life. In fact, just consider what Proverbs says, just to burst the bubble of our misunderstanding. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of God. In other words, if you want to live a life that makes sense, you better fear God. How do we reconcile these two concepts? Clearly, we have to broaden our definition. And it's important that we keep this tension in mind because when Paul opens up and he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we see that that fear is directly related to the fact that Jesus will one day judge the world. And so, once again, in verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Okay. The idea behind fear here is easy uh, to try and fix by being reductionistic in another way. And so if you've grown up in the church and you've encountered this concept of fear of the Lord, often we try and replace it with the synonym reverence. And so it's not, it's not fear and trembling, it's reverence, it's respect, it's these words, but those words really aren't strong enough and you will find plenty of occasions where people are clearly trembling in their fear of the Lord and that's not necessarily inappropriate, Okay. The real idea that we need to get across here is one of gravity. It's one of sobriety. It's one of reality. When Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, what he's recognizing is the final and ultimate life, or uh, the final and ultimate perspective, the final and ultimate vote on your life. The most critical aspect of determining your life is going to have to do with God and not other things okay in other words when you act how do you vet that action when you come up with a plan who do you expect that plan to be up for review under when you go about your life who's in the audience that matters that has to do with fear That's why the primary contrast the Bible makes between fear of God and something else is not fear of wolves or spiders or anything else, or even fear of death. It's fear of man. And I want you to notice here that uh, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, I want to be clear this morning that when we're captive with the fear of others, when we have anthropophobia when we fear other people we also seek to persuade them 
but what we're trying to persuade, our goal in our communication uh, is different. We are trying to convince the world of something. Imagine you're in a courtroom. Your life is on trial. And you look to your left and you go, okay, that must be the jury. And so you're speaking to them and you're appealing to them. But what if they're just the other inmates waiting for their hearing? And the judge is the only one to whom you have to speak. That's the danger we find ourselves in. And you might go, you know what? I am my own person. I'm not really subject to the fear of others, but understand this. Just, uh, it's, it's a trite illustration, but consider fashion, because I think this is the number one place that's easy to see this. Oftentimes, we react to the fashions of the world, and we go, no, we're not subject to that, but we react to that. Everybody goes, this is the standard, this is beauty, this is attractive, this is how someone rightly dresses, and we go, no, I'm going to dress differently than that, thank you very much but we're still appealing to the same court. We're saying, I'm unique, I'm an individual, I'm a rebel, you better notice, you better see. Don't you see this in your life? How many times have you known the right action to take and didn't take it because someone was watching? That's the fear of man. We don't understand the part that other people play in our life, but. But everybody together tell me that according to the studies that we've never seen the numbers for but is always quoted, what is the number one fear of human beings? Public speaking, right? Have you ever heard that? It's in like 10 of the 100 speeches given at Toastmasters every year, right? Public speaking. We look at the world around us as a jury that determines our worth, as a a journey that determines what's right and what's wrong, uh, as a jury, jury that has full say in who we are. And it's not easy to shake just by trying to say, I'm not gonna be afraid anymore. Listen, I understand this personally. I had a really rough year in fourth grade, and I say that with a smile on my face because that's probably good news. That was the worst year of my life. I would say that's a pretty successful life. Okay. But it did change me drastically. It was one of those seasons, I think we've all experienced it, where the people I thought were my friends ended up not being such. And I found myself totally alone. And the posture I took over the next couple of years was effectively, screw everybody else. I don't care what they think anymore. And that's very much the background of where I met Jesus. Okay, my very first high school dance, I showed up in vinyl pants and a red and blue tight-fitting leopard shirt that I could only get off with help, okay? That's who I was. That's who I was. I wore pinstripe pants and band t-shirts. It was impossible to categorize, and I based the foundation of my value on that, that I had somehow escaped the game. But you know what? To this day, I am still riddled with the insecurities of what other people think about me. I just changed the rules of the game. I didn't get out of the game. The thing is, the thing is, by, because we are human beings, we have to fear something. And remember, I'm not just talking about the shaking in your boots, what keeps you up at night, what do you buy a lock to keep out. 
I'm talking about this broader category of what determines the decisions you make in your life. Whose perspective matters? All of us fear something. And I want you to recognize what happens in our human relationships when what we fear is other people. It makes it impossible to love them. Now, that might sound counterintuitive. You, you might think, well, but if they're the ones who get the vote and they're determining the actions I take, then at least whoever at the moment I'm trying to please, right, that's for their benefit. No, it's not. First off, look at the motivation. If you're doing it out of fear of what other people will think, who is your primary concern, them or you? You. When we operate from a fear of others, we focus on ourselves. Okay? And the second thing is, when we operate under the fear of man, we cave. Even when things are really important, even when there are deepest convictions, even if we know what's coming, we cave, and that's not necessarily in the interest of others. Let's take a particular category of man as illustration. Your children. Okay? The most loving thing you can do for your children sometimes is to not listen to them. In fact, that's what we would expect to be the case because they are not as smart as you. They don't have all the good experience you have. They haven't read the studies on what happens if you live off candy bars. Okay? They haven't experienced the stomach aches you've had when you didn't listen to your parents. Right? The way that loving parenthood works often goes against the grain of the desire of the child as it should be. And that makes sense to us, but it's also true of your peers, even if it's not as often true of your peers. There are things that are the most loving thing to do in the moment that are going to be the most unwanted. How do you get there? Your fear has to shift. Your fear has to change. And so notice Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because his fear is rightly oriented, he's focused on other people, specifically persuading them. But he's not persuading them of his goodness or his righteousness or that he belongs or that he has some sort of value. He's persuading them about the reality of Jesus Christ. Because he rightly understands who God is, he wants for others to understand who God is. Notice what it doesn't say there, and this is, it helps clarify the fear again. He doesn't say, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade God. Right? That's almost what we would expect. Knowing God is the one with whom we have to deal, knowing that he is the creator who we were responsible to, knowing that he will be final judge, we better be really convincing. We better really prove to him that we're worth it, that we deserve it. That's not even in Paul's mind. Notice what he says next. He says, but what we are is known to God. Okay? The first thing is, there's no persuasion when it comes to God. If God is all-knowing, the facts are on the table, and there's no smoothing it over, no rounding the edges, no being tremendously convincing. You is what you is, right, when it comes to God. And he says this then, not with fear in the sense of not knowing what the outcome is, but with confidence. 
He doesn't have to persuade God because God knows who he really is. And who he really is is in Jesus Christ. That's taken care of. But knowing the fear of the Lord, that effectively he's performing his life for an audience of one, he persuades others. He's focused on others. Now, this is where it gets complex. As we talk this way, it makes it sound like others, if you're a Christian this morning, are just non-Christians. But notice how Paul brings in other Christians here, and it gets complicated. And so what he says is, what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. If anyone should understand the life that Paul is living, one being based on the fear of God, it should be other Christians, but that's not the case. He's having to go here, I hope, if you're right-minded and you look in your own conscience, you'll go, we know who Paul is, right? Because that's the question. That's the one these critics are asking. Do you really know what's going on with Paul? Can you really trust Paul? And he says, if anyone should understand why I live the way I live, why I do what I do, the obsessions of my life, it should be you, Church of Corinth. Not just because they are peers in the Christian life, but because they are products of Paul's ministry. And see, that's one of the difficult things about what we're talking about. This concept of the fear of man and what other people think is not something that the church is scot-free of. The ability for people to have the wrong perspective and push you in the wrong direction and manipulate you through their influence is not something that just happens outside the doors of the church. Some of the most heartbreaking occasions in my life have been where I had to choose to follow God instead of agree with another Christian. Some of you have experienced this whole concept with your parents, both aspects of what we're talking about. You feel like your entire mission in life is to finally earn their approval. But if your parents are Christians, you don't necessarily escape that. And there were occasions where I had to choose to do what God was telling me or choose what my parents thought was a better idea. That's not really a fun place to be in. There are places where Christians in the church who should be encouraging you in the proper direction are actually holding you back, restraining you, causing you to doubt. All of those things can take place. Paul's whole life was difficulty. Just read later in the letter when he talks about all the things that he went through. And here are the people who are a product of that ministry going, hey, Paul, could you dial it back a little bit? I mean, you're being a little bit radical. Wouldn't it make sense for you just to ease up just a little bit, be respectable? Even here, why is he laying these things on the table? Is it so he can prove to the church that they're wrong and that he's really a good guy, that he's totally a valid apostle, that he does represent Jesus and that they should be proud of him? Is he stuck back in this concept of fear of man? This is what I think is so profound about this passage. Notice what he says next, verse 12. We're not commending ourselves to you again. Now, we could take that or leave that, right? Sometimes people say, look, I'm not saying this in my interest, but, and we know that they are. And we could read this the same way. Paul could say, I'm not trying to commend myself to you, but he actually is. But we know he's not because notice what he says next. 
He says, instead, we are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. He says, my real concern here is that you would be able to stand against these criticisms for your own sake. Even his own reputation, he only cares about to the benefit of other people. Okay? That is a change in posture. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, my hope is that you would get these things for your sake. Okay? That's what's going on in the Apostle Paul. And he also deals with another thing here that helps us to understand right and proper fear. Who are they supposed to be answering? Why should they be boasting in Paul's ministry? They should do it against those who, quote, boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, let me make a clarification this morning. You don't know my heart is an easy thing to say. And that is not what Paul is saying this morning. What he's contrasting here is reality with appearances. And he refers to the inner man here because a good deal of reality plays out there, okay? But we have to keep that in, the t- in tension with the fact that what flows out of your mouth, as Jesus says, begins in your heart. And so oftentimes we do know your heart because you said that. You said it aloud and we all heard it, okay? There is this correlation between who you are and what's going on in the inside, Jesus explained righteousness and wickedness in this way. He said, thorn bushes bear thorns, and grapevines bear grapes, right? Who you are leads to what you do, okay? When you sin, it doesn't make you a sinner, it proves you're one, okay? That's the idea here. And so Paul is not saying here, despite appearances, you don't know my heart. He's saying something different than that. He's saying what impresses these people is all external and therefore shallow. Here's one of the interesting things about hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is ultimately about this idea of being afraid of other people, of giving them the final vote on your life. Okay, we don't always think that way, and we despise hypocrites because they're not what they appear, but why do they think Why do they think they can get away with appearances? Because the audience is other people. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, listen, hypocrisy isn't just a great sin. It's a foolish one. Because the only people you can fool don't get a vote. And the only one whose vote counts, you can't fool. Right? The reality is you is who you is, despite appearances. Okay? And so... Even in religiosity, we can actually engage with the fear of man, and what we're really trying to do is impress other people. If if that weren't the case, we wouldn't be so self-satisfied, because we know better. We know what's going on in our mind. We know what's going on when no one watches. We know what's going on in the dark recesses of our privacy. And yet we still feel like, well, I'm clearly better than other people. Appearances. For... Paul's audience, this had especially to do with um, what was going on in Corinth for about a hundred years now, which was public speaking was a primary way of life. In other words, people would come in and they would explain their philosophies, and if they were eloquent and articulate, they would get a following. 
And so the Corinthians went about following one way of life to another based on the qualifications of teachers, of the ability of their rhetoric. In fact, this was such a big deal when Paul came in, he almost chose to stutter because he didn't want their foundation to be on Paul's eloquence but the power of the gospel. And so he said, forget about the wisdom of the world. I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Forget about the things that impresses man. I am intentionally unimpressive for your sake so that when you understand the truth, it's on the right foundations of what God is and not what Paul is. Okay? But here comes these people and they're going, is Paul really respectable enough for you to follow? I mean, he's got, he's got this tiny and unconvincing voice. He's, he's not powerful in presence. Yeah, he writes powerful letters, but that's easy. When he says here that they're merely looking at outward appearances and not about what's in the heart, he goes on and he says this in verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Beside ourselves is a literal translation of that phrase, but get the imagery, okay? Beside ourselves means there's two of you having a conversation, but it's really just you. He's saying, if we're crazy, if we've gone mad, it's for your sake. And this is effectively what the critics of Paul were saying. They were saying, Paul has lost his mind. That's not something we like to wear as a badge. Okay? It's a pretty small selection of people whose aspiration is to demonstrate how crazy they are. In fact, the ones who are really dealing with mental issues are the first to say that they're not crazy, okay? But what I want you to notice about this is that one of the demonstrations that you care more about what God thinks than about what other people thinks is that your life doesn't make sense to other people. In fact, Paul knows what it's like to be called crazy. There's an occasion in the book of Acts where he's standing before a ruler by the name of Festus. And he's in chains as a prisoner of Rome. And he's trying to convince, at his own court case, the whole audience to believe in Jesus. He's effectively saying, life with Jesus is fantastic. And his hands are bound in chains. And Festus speaks up and he goes, Paul, you have gone crazy with much studying. And he goes, I tell you, I'm as sane as anyone here, and I desire that everyone would have what I have except for these chains. You're mad, Paul. You've lost your mind. You've gone crazy. But you know, we also find this in the life of Jesus. Jesus went about his life, did his ministry, was doing what he was doing, and his own family comes, and they've heard about it, and they go, I think he's lost his mind. We better take him home. We better build a room off the house and he can just have his private studio and he can paint his beatitudes and we'll just keep him away from the public, right? That was their plan for Jesus. Listen, the life that God calls Christians to live in response to what he's done in Jesus Christ is radical. It doesn't make sense. Some people looked at the ministry of Paul and the other apostles and they said they're turning the whole world upside down right? Everything you know is wrong is one of the aspects of what it means to be a Christian. And so when you start to live that out, it's going to bother some people because it goes against the grain of the status quo. And so for those of you who are Christians this morning, let me ask you, is there 
anything in your life, anything, are you following Jesus close enough in any way that some people think you're crazy? Because honestly, if you read the New Testament and the call it gives to Christians, there's a good deal of opportunity for crazy. There's a good deal of place for misunderstanding. There's a lot of appeal to radicalness. And it's so easy for us to be restrained, to keep the seatbelt on, to dial it back, to have just enough so that we're comfortable, but not enough so that we're confusing to other people. But Paul says, look, if we're beside ourselves, it's for your sake. Some of the things Jesus says are crazy. They're totally radical. It's so easy for us, like our language, to be reductionistic with Jesus and just trim back the rough edges to the Jesus that we like because he's acceptable. You want to know what Jesus said about fear? He said this, look, don't fear those who can take your life and once your life is gone, can't do anything else. Instead, Fear the one who, after you're dead, will determine the rest of eternity. He went to the religious leaders of his day, and he said, you guys are nothing better than tombs with a fresh paint, coat of paint. On the inside, you're just as dead as everyone else. You're just pretending. He looked at a woman giving in the temple who gave what today, we don't even have a small enough currency for even a single coin of what she gave. Just a lepta, the smallest Roman coin there is. And he looks at her and he goes, she gave more than everyone else who came today. And what could be more radical than standing on trial and knowing you're innocent and not defending yourself? What could be more radical than willingly giving up your life for the people who were taking it? What could be more radical than for your last recorded words to include a phrase like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we look crazy, it's because we really understand who God is. He says, even if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Once again, I want you to hear how the position has changed here. It's not that if you become a Christian, you cut yourself off from the world and their opinion no longer matters. It's that if you understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, you will need people less and love them more. You will rely less upon their opinion and you will serve them more deeply. So that's how fear plays out in Paul's life. But then he goes on and he comes to love. This is the other motive in Paul's life. This is the other reorientation. Notice what he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Do you see the balance in this passage? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and here, compelled by the love of Christ. These are the two big reorientations that have happened in Paul's life. A change in what he ultimately fears and a change in what ultimately drives him in terms of love. And once again here, he doesn't say, 
for the love of others controls us. Right? Appeasing others, being loved and well-liked. And it's not even the love of others that compels us. Like, okay, my mission in life now is to love other people. And so I'm driven to do that in any way possible, by any means necessary. He doesn't even say our love of God compels us. The phrase here, love of Christ compels us, it's not I love Jesus so much I feel compelled to expend my entire life ounce by ounce for the world. It's because of Christ's love for me I'm compelled. That's his new motivation. That's his new foundation. And you see, the cross of Christ speaks to both of these things. If you want to understand that we should rightly fear God, then we look at the cross of Christ where his own son experiences the full punishment of sin. That's serious. That's sober. There's no humor there. There's no comedy. And when you understand the significance and the meaning of the cross, you understand the precariousness of your own circumstances, that you were a sinner worthy of death. Nothing should make us fear God like the cross of Christ. But nothing demonstrate, demonstrates God's love for us like the cross of Christ. Okay. As is often said, we are so sinful that the cross proves that Jesus had to die for us. That's fear. But we are so loved that the cross on the cross, Jesus was willing to die for us. That's love. That's what lays underneath the foundation and changes the way we live. Fear and love. So let's look closer at love. He says here, the love of Christ controls us or constrains us, it's sometimes translated, or even compels us. He is driven by one thing. Why is he breaking the boundaries of convention? because he's compelled by the love of Christ to do so. Why is he working so hard in his life? Why is he enduring danger? Why is he suffering in the way he's suffering? Because the love of Christ compels us. Notice what he says next. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay. Now, what he's saying here means a couple of things. First off, God's love is so great, it's even for you. If Jesus died for all, therefore all died. Okay? In other words, he's saying that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. And so he feels compelled to share it because there's more to share. Because it's available to you. Because you can experience this love as well. But when he says here, all have died, that also means the way he views other people, he now views through the lens of Jesus. And I think this is tremendously important. Look at what he says next. He says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but him for, who for their sake died and was raised. Now first, here's why love others as your personal motto won't work. It's because it's too easily polluted and convoluted by love of self. And so you will get hijacked in your attempt to love of others in really just trying to get them to appreciate the love you're giving them. 
because you want them to know how great you are. That's why you did that good thing, okay? You will find in your love for others lines you will draw that says, no, that's too far. I will love other people, but that person is impossible to love. You will walk away and go, fine, they don't want to be loved, I'm done. It's not hard for us to find the limits of our ability by our own bootstraps to love other people. But he says here that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. The love one another that flows out of the Christian life is truly a selfless love. I'm not saying we always achieve that as Christians. I'm talking about what's available to us. Sometimes the best way to see it is not by looking at where it doesn't happen, but miraculously where it does. Right? Where head-scratchingly you go, I do not know how I just did that. Or I would have never behaved that way in the past. Or that person used to totally get under my skin. How was I able to operate solely on their behalf? But notice the secret here. He says, and he died for all that all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but, notice it doesn't say but for other people. What does it say? But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our love for others flows through our living for Jesus. It's not Jesus took care of us, so now we can focus on other people. It's Jesus took care of us, and now we live for him to the benefit of others. That difference is the difference between natural human expressions of religious love and this spiritual power the gospel calls the love of God. I'll illustrate it. Look at what he says in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Why does he say that? Because in Christ, if Christ died for all, then all have died. At least potentially. Because Jesus' sacrifice is so sufficient, we no longer look at people the same way because we view them through the lens of the cross of Christ. And that means effectively two things that changes the way you love other people. Okay. First off, it means you're no longer impressed with the things that used to impress you. For most of us, the relationships we make, the good deeds that we do, uh, the positive things that we perform in our life are due because we find people who we want to do those things for, right? Romance is not drudgery for specifically this reason, because it's fun to love someone you already enjoy. Who do you invite over to your house for dinner? This isn't my test. This is Jesus' test. For most of us, we invite over people who would also be likely to invite us back. And Jesus says, when you have a dinner party, don't invite those who will reward you by inviting you to their house. Instead, invite the poor and the blind and the maimed who cannot repay you, and you will be repaid in heaven. You see, we're no longer impressed with the riches of the world. We're no longer dependent on what the popular have to offer us. We're no longer invested in these things. I heard a guy say a while ago, and it wouldn't have struck me this way if I wasn't a Christian, but he said, I have made it a determination in my life to always be the dumbest person in the room. He wanted to always surround himself with people he could learn from. 
And that totally resonates with our culture right now because we go, that, that right there, that's ambition and it's wisdom. Yeah, but it's worldly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom that says, I'm here to get anything I can out of only those who have something to offer. But if you understand that all have died in Christ and that the wealth and the riches and the popularities and all of the earmarks of what people can do for you have died in Jesus, then it will change the way you treat those who have something to offer you. Okay, it doesn't make you a snob. It doesn't make you reject those people. It equalizes those people. Those people aren't worthy of love because they're rich or smart or wealthy. They're worthy of love because they were created in the image of God and Christ died for them. It changes the scales. James warns us about this in the church. He says, who do you go up to and greet in the church? Who do you ask to come and sit by you? Is it those who are rich and who are wealthy? He says, do you show partiality? He says, when the poor person comes back, do we all shift a seat over so that we don't have to sit next to them? Where does that stuff come through? It comes through the equalization of the cross of Christ, but that's not all. When he says here that we no longer know anyone according to the flesh, that means also, despite what they've done to us, despite what they're capable of, despite what you've heard, despite what's in the paper, the gospel is for them. It means if Christ died for all, he even died for them. Now, the sins that any given culture despises and alienates and isolates changes from culture to culture. But there's always that category. How often did Jesus invite someone over for dinner or have a meal with someone and everybody went, him? Her? Really, Jesus? That's the Christian life because that's God's love. Because if Jesus Christ died, he died for them and those and the other. Here's what I want to finish. I want you to notice this morning that the foundation of this is not just merely, I'm really going about this the wrong way. I need to stop behaving in this way. I need to repent. It's something different. Paul doesn't say, look, your behavior is so incongruent with the gospel. How dare you live this way? Even when James does say things like that, he doesn't merely say things like that. What has happened for us as Christians in Jesus Christ is nothing short of a paradigm shift. And we don't always look that in the eye. We don't always live from it. But let's just put it one more time as profound as it is. The truth that the Bible presents is that we are in serious dire straits by our own will, by our own choice, through repeated action, we have taken the one God who lovingly and graciously created us and we have scorned him and we have rebelled against him and there are consequences. That's the world we live in. That world has a place for a stock market but it's not a big place. That world has a place for what degrees you hang on your wall but it's not a big place. 
that world has a place for uh, you know, your, your popularity index, but it's not a big place. It changes the center of your life. Like we talked about last week, looking in Philippians. When life is over and you look back and you reflect for yourself how you feel about that life and what that life means is going to be determined by things like this. What drives you? What sets the boundaries? Who gets a vote? And then we have to consider the love of Christ. There's an occasion in Jesus' ministry where he's meeting with Simon the Pharisee for dinner. And Simon is a Pharisee. He's respected by everyone but in a sense, Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus sees him for what he really is, which is not that much to boast in. But he's having dinner at Simon's house anyways because Jesus always accepted invitations. And this woman comes in off the street of ill repute, it says in some of the older translations of the Bible. Most likely she's a prostitute. She comes into the house of this well-known religious elite and she falls down at the feet of Jesus and pours perfume on his feet and she begins weeping and she's cleaning his feet from the dirty roads of the Middle East with her hair. And Simon thinks to himself, if Jesus was a real prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that was and he'd keep his distance. And Jesus, being able to know what Simon is thinking, says, Simon, let me tell you a story. A man had two servants and they both owed him money. And one owed 50 bucks, and the other owed 50,000, and he forgave them both equally. He says, tell me, which one will love their master more? And Simon gets the point. He says, well, obviously, the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And he says, you've said rightly. He said, when I came into this house, you didn't anoint me as was normal practice of hospitality, but this woman came and she anointed me with her tears. You didn't embrace me, but she hasn't stopped wrapping her arms around me in her weeping. And sometimes we read that story, and it sounds like some of us are disqualified from really following God. Because our story is not that great. We're only as bad as Simon and not as bad as the prostitute. We hear these stories sometimes about powerful people who have done great things for God, and then we find out that they were, you know... Um, drug-addicted murderers, and we go, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's not Jesus' point. He's not creating two classes. What he's saying is the more in touch you are with your own sinfulness, the more profoundly God's love will impact you. Here's probably the least countercultural way I could put it. The more you understand the true and righteous fear of God, the deeper God's love will flow in your life. And both of those things will change the way you treat other people because it will remove them from the audience with the scorecards and the six from the Russian judge and put them rightly, properly in the field of love, but always through the lens of the love of Christ compels us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to be honest this morning about the things that are driving our lives, about the way we go about our jobs or even the aspirations in our career, 
about the way we think about money, about the portions of the Bible that we easily and readily obey, obey and the other ones that we just kind of ignore and avoid. Please, this morning, for those of us who are Christians, help us to get in touch with reality of the God who is God and the God who is love. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to rightly assess the way we treat other people and the type of people we interact with and that we would be able to make this profound shift because of what you have done in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to explain what it looks like for that to change. I want to give you, if you will, the ABCs. A, you have to accept what the Bible says about you. You have to accept that you're a sinner in need of salvation and that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. B, you have to believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who came to live the life you couldn't live and die the death that you deserve and freely offer you forgiveness. And C, you have to You have to commit. You have to respond and say, I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to allow God to dictate the avenues and the nuance and the pursuits of my life. I am going to declare that Jesus is Lord. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do so just where you are, to receive that, to to respond to this act of love but I promise you this if you do so it will change you God for all of us as we continue to reflect through worship today I pray Lord that you would deepen the contours of our understanding that you would dig deeper the ditches of our need for a savior and therefore the profound provision of a savior in Jesus Christ and that it would change the way we view other people. Jesus, you gave us two commandments that you said were ultimate and total. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we've seen this morning, those aren't on equal par. It's not two things to do. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we will love our neighbor as ourselves. So I pray that you would do that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes up to lead us in a few more songs in worship, uh, we reserve this time primarily to respond, and we always have the same opportunities to respond. One is just to sing, and we sing as a response because in our songs we declare who God is. God says in his Bible this morning, this is who I am, and we sing along with him and say, amen, this is who you are. For those of us who are Christians, you're welcome to come forward and partake of communion to remember the love of Christ, to be compelled and constrained by it this morning, taking the bread that represents his body that was broken for you and drinking of the cup that represents the new covenant in his shed blood. And another way we respond oftentimes is we confess to one another, we ask for one another's prayer, we encourage one another, and so we've got some people available up front who would love to pray for you. Um, if you need prayer this morning, feel free to make your way up to them. But let's take some time and respond.